Thank you so much. Well, I got huge imposter syndrome. Thank you, for Seth, for... Uh... <laughs> I, mean, I think my main qualification for being here is that I was the first investor in altruistic. <laughs> so, um, so um, um, and, and, and I think Ian over there might have been the second. Um, so I, um, I, I guess the other qualification is that I'm a lifelong nature lover. I, um, I grew up with an obsession for, for wildlife. For building a pond in the back garden at my mother's house in Richmond was like the height of excitement. You know, weeks of planning and fantasy about what this thing would be. And it's actually very sandy in Richmond, so the water drained away and <laughs> didn't work very well. But these kinds of things, putting up bird boxes and, and, and looking for birds' nests, and, 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 and it's my happiest, most positive experiences from my childhood were all in nature. And um, I think that's probably true of all of us. You know, I, th I think if you think back to when you grew up, the best experiences of your childhood, more often than not, they're the experiences on a beach or in a park, or experiences in, in connection with the natural world. Um, and I think most people don't realize the extent to which that natural world in this country is, is depleted. You know, probably 100, according to the IUCN rankings, probably 180 out of the almost 200 nations of the world are in better shape than we are. You know, we're, we're among the most nature depleted countries on earth, alongside our neighbor, Ireland, alongside Kuwait, in Malta. You know, these are countries in which there are very few um, intact ecosystems remaining where many species have disappeared and so on. And you, you, it's difficult to believe it. And you fly into Gatwick and you look out and you see this great patchwork quilt, this kind of tapestry of green fields and, and, and so on and little pockets of woodland. And it's difficult to imagine that in fact um, it's, it's a very silent landscape that we live in. It's, it's only when you go on holiday in France or Italy and you find yourself drunkenly wandering at nighttime back to your accommodation and you listen to the, just the, the throbbing of life, the singing of crickets and nighttime frogs and so on, and you suddenly realize that that's all fallen silent here. You know, we're, we're, in, we're in terrible shape um, from, from a natural diversity and abundance perspective, um, even though it doesn't seem so. And I, I argue that we really need it. You know, I think we need it on some visceral level. You know, an apartment which overlooks Hyde Park will sell for twice the price of one that doesn't. You know, even those who don't know that they retain that connection that they once had in childhood with the natural world, it is still there, it's dormant. Bi biophilia is the term that the writer E.O. Wilson coined to describe uh, humanity's innate love for the non-human world. And in many people, that biophilia is dormant, but it's, it's still there. We crave contact with nature. You look at the parks after the Queen's funeral yesterday, a little bit of sunshine and everyone's outside. And so just at this moment, you know, following the lockdowns and so on, when we sort of experience this great upwelling of, 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 of biophilia, we find that there isn't much nature left. <clears throat> and we don't just need it for visceral reasons, for sort of soul food reasons. We need it to, to fix the climate crisis. Now, the climate gets a lot of attention, not enough, but it's rising fast up the political agenda and political action on decarbonisation around the world um, seems to me beyond our wildest dreams of five years ago. It still may not be enough or fast enough, but, but the world is decarbonising very fast. Nature, as our key ally in tackling climate, is not so high up the agenda. It's considered a little bit of an afterthought. Now, I, I, I still occasionally find myself sitting next to you know, a, a, a sort of an elderly friend of my mother's at a dinner somewhere, and, oh, you're the one that loves nature, you know, as if, it, as if it's kind of akin to stamp collecting or something. Well, na nature is our key ally, and I figure that if we don't, in parallel with decarbonizing, if we don't simultaneously restore the natural fabric of the world, then we won't defeat this great climate issue. 
Um, and and, and I, I figure that our civilization risks um, becoming toast. Um, and and, and the nice illustration of this is um, the, the emergent science around what happened as a result of one of the great human catastrophes of the last millennium. And that was the obliteration by Europeans and the diseases they brought with them of the indigenous of Latin, Central and North America. Now, probably 50 million people reduced to one or two million in the space of half, half a century. And as a result of that calamity, huge swathes of farmland were abandoned. And an enormous vegetation pulse took place in which those forests of Appalachia all the way down to the Amazon basin regrew very rapidly. And the drawdown of carbon from the atmosphere was such that scientists now believe um, uh, uh, it's the cause of the mini ice age that took place between 1650 and 1850. The Thames right here, I don't know which way the river is, but the Thames right here, that way, froze almost every winter between 1650 and 1850. They had a circus there. You can see the lithographs and the, so on of these, you know, of the, of the kind of um, funfair and people spending the winter on the river, you know, having these fairs. No, there was a, it was a, a, a minor climate calamity for a lot of people in the Northern Hemisphere. And what that illustrates is that if we restore nature on a grand scale, not just trees, everyone talks about trees, but coastal salt marshes and sea grasses and coral reefs and, and, and peat bogs and, and grasslands and savannas, restore it all, there will be a massive drawdown of carbon dioxide that will take place alongside the process of decarbonisation. And I don't believe we can have one without the other. It's terrible in this country in terms of the damage we're doing to carbon sinks. I live next to the Somerset Levels. Glastonbury, you all know about Glastonbury. I mean, it's called Glastonbury because of the glassy water that once surrounded um, the little elevation on which the town of Glastonbury exists. It is a, it's the Avalon Marshes, the birthplace of England, the Arthurian legends, uh, King Alfred hid out there. The, 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 the William Blake hymn, Jerusalem, suggests that Jesus Christ himself may have visited Glastonbury um, you know, in, 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 in 2,000 years ago. And, 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 and Glastonbury is a place of tremendous cultural and spiritual significance. There are 11 abbeys in the Somerset levels. But most importantly, this great wetland was an enormous carbon sink. The, the, the drying out of the peat today beneath that former wetland which has been drained in the last 80 to 100 years, turned into 60,000 hectares of low-grade farmland, which is sinking fast as the peat dries out, emits more carbon than the entirety of Bristol, sorry, the entirety of Somerset and Avon combined. That's the city of Bristol, Bath, it's, it's uh, the motorways, the airports. It's an enormous source of carbon, or a source of methane, and as compared with being a carbon sink, which it should be. So restoring that great wetland has a huge value in tackling climate, and I think that's kind of illustrative of what we need to do nationwide. And so what I want to suggest to you is the idea that the environmental land management scheme, as described by the Agriculture Act 2020, is the principal mechanism by which we restore nature in this country. 75% of this country is farmed, Nature is terribly depleted across the board from the least productive to the most productive of our landscapes. What the environmental land management scheme does is offer a recognition that land can benefit us in tangible, quantifiable ways beyond just the food that can be produced from it. So what it envisages is a world in which land managers receive two revenue lines. The revenue line they've always received from the food that they sell, there's a market price for food, they will sell food and a revenue line for the environmental and other public benefits that they deliver from their land. So in effect, the concept of subsidies goes out the window, as you might hope under a conservative government. You know, the idea of long-term subsidies for any industry doesn't run 
particularly well with an ideology of free market enterprise and conservatism. So the subsidy system gets scrapped. The first country in the world to replace the subsidy system with such an environmentally linked scheme. New Zealand scrapped subsidies full stop, so that they went halfway. But the world today hands out $700 billion each year in agricultural subsidies to farmers. So it's a massive, massive um, uh, um, uh, distortion created by government intervention. England is the very first country to replace that with an environmentally linked scheme. And what they've done is they've linked the scheme, or they've designed the scheme across three tiers, which in my view sort of maps the three categories of land that we have in this country. So 85% of the food we produce comes from just 20% of the land, mostly in the east, the flatlands of East Anglia, you know, the Cambridgeshire, Lincolnshire, these are the up through the east of England. That's where the majority of the food is produced. And on these landscapes, the goal is a regenerative farming future, which I'm not going to talk a huge amount about because the next speaker is going to cover that. But the idea is, in summary, in my view, is to combine the best of ancient wisdom, so things like rotational practices, with the best of modern technology, you know, the likes of um, satellite imagery, drones, and soil sensors. You know, if you have a um, little bit of eczema in your elbow, you wouldn't soak your entire body in steroids. You know, you'd, you'd apply it with some precision. Well, precision application of chemicals um, and so on, and, 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 and farming in such a way, things like no-till to protect the soil and so on. So the sustainable farming incentive will provide for the first time a whole load of incentives to those kinds of farmers to do what they do, to feed the nation, but to do so in a way that doesn't trash the soil. Now, I don't know if anyone here has ever been to Blackpool or to, uh, or to Brighton, but you stand on the pier, you know, most of the year the water is brown. Well, it didn't used to be like that. You read eyewitness attack from Samuel Pepys or Oliver Goldsmith was a naturalist, no relation, in the late 18th century. The sea was blue like the Bahamas. You know, we didn't have this brown water surrounding our island. And it's just a result of soil erosion. And, and regenerative practices will seek to keep the soil on the land rather than allowing it to wash away. Um, I, was, I was last week in, um, in, uh, in Ely. And just outside Ely, there is a post which was deposited just after the great, um, have you seen that post? Yeah, just after the great Crystal Palace exhibition of 1851, where 1853 they stuck a post in at Ely to measure the level of the soil. Well, it's dropped six meters, the soil. Now the post is exposed to the tune of six. We've lost six meters of our most fertile soil in that area that produces 85% of our food. In most places, there's a meter or two meters left. So the SFI will seek to encourage productive farmers who are focused on producing food to do so in a way that doesn't trash nature, doesn't trash pollinators, doesn't trash soil, doesn't trash the watercourses. Um, and then the second tier is called no local nature recovery. And what's attractive about these three schemes is the less productive your land, the greater your opportunities for benefiting from the more generous ends of the scheme around natural capital and environmental services. If you're at the top of a catchment, for example, you stand to benefit substantially from helping to reduce flooding, helping to deliver clean water, helping to restore nature and so on, and your land most likely is pretty difficult to farm. You know, the steep slopes of the kind of Selwood forest area where I am in Somerset, the heavy clay, no one plows, it's very difficult to farm in, a, in an intensive way, but there's huge opportunities under this second tier, which is local nature recovery, which is about creating habitat in the farmed environment with a whole set of benefits in mind, flood mitigation and so on. So that might be um, uh, 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 conservation margins, hedgerows, ponds, pocket wetlands, you know, beavers, this kind of stuff. And then the third tier of the scheme, which is the smallest but the most ambitious, is called landscape recovery. And this is really a pump prime for landowners who want 
to dive headfirst into this natural capital market, where food production will really be a byproduct. So it might be landowners in the Somerset levels that are willing to allow water back on their land for nine months of the year. Somerset, the summer settlement, that's what it used to be called. It was inaccessible for nine months of the year. Or it might be sheep ranchers in the uplands of the Pennines who have large numbers of sheep and rather overgrazed hills which are not very absor absorbent when it rains and therefore contribute to flooding downstream. It might be a transition to a more extensive way of farming using traditional native cattle. So some would use the term rewilding. I love the term rewilding. I don't know that it applies in that instance. I think rewilding is more about the three C's, which are carnivores, cores, and corridors. Um, I don't think we'll see the carnivores anytime soon, certainly not wolves. Um, they're in Luxembourg, they're in Barcelona, they're in Amsterdam. Of course, the debate's ludicrous, so of course we can have wolves, but, but I don't see it happening very soon. What I see is wild farming taking place in our uplands. So I see farming communities switching to a more extensive way of farming using native cattle. And that, that the presence of those native cattle guarantees those communities, guarantees an ongoing existence of farming, but it also guarantees the return of the great mosaic wood pastures that once blanketed this island. I, I don't know if people are aware of um, the work of a professor called Franz Vera. I think he's at the University of Utrecht. Well, Franz Vera has turned um, ecological history on its head by suggesting that Northwestern Europe and Britain were never forested in the way that Brazil is. We never had trees on top of trees on top of trees. If you look at a children's storybook, the species that we love, you know, the blackberries that we pick in autumn, the wild strawberries, the wild, um, the wild flowers, the hedgehogs, the, the songbirds, they all live at the woodland edge. The trees that we love, the crab apples, the oaks, they're all open growth trees that rely on lots of sunlight, which points to a past in which sunlight was abundant. And the influence that he believes that has been missed is the influence of big animals, grazing animals. In the absence of cattle, you get the kind of dark wooden that we all used to smoke in at school. You know, we hide behind the building, it's just ivy on the floor and it's dark. And, and, and apart from a few kind of wood-eating fungi, there, there's not much in the way of biodiversity. And if you have the cattle, then they chew and they browse and they trample and they graze. And they create these shape-shifting, dynamic, mosaic woodlands that are rocket fuel for nature. In you know, NEP, who was a first place in Sussex, first place in England, to apply Vera's experiment with funding from the European Commission on 3,000 acres, has turned an industrial farm into a, with terribly low quality soil, grade five, grade four, they've turned that landscape into the, a place where you find the highest density of breeding songbirds of any site in Britain in 20 years. The only place in Europe where the number of nightingales and turtle doves is on the increase. So it's rocket fuel for nature, and it's something of a silver bullet for our upland communities and for our remoter landscapes, because you're talking about extensive grazing with native cattle, the farmer is still there, the farm buildings are still there, the farm community continues, but the number of animals is substantially reduced and you've switched from sheep to cattle. That is the British version of rewilding or wilder farming. And I think that that, that third tier, landscape recovery, is going to pump prime land, clusters of landowners to pursue that approach such that the tab will ultimately be picked up by the water companies, by the flood insurance companies, by the, those businesses wanting to offset their carbon, um, but, and so on, and nature tourism and all of that stuff. So I, um, well, we need to defend it because it's bigger than anything else. We've got other, we have the Environment Act is great. We've got the Fisheries Act, a 25 year environment plan, lots of good things happening in policy terms. But the big one for nature is this environmental land management scheme, and it's by no means secure. You read in the Telegraph or the Spectator quite often 
that if we, if we, if we um, pursue this approach, we're all going to starve, and those that don't starve are going to be eaten by wolves. You know? but, um, so I, I would urge you all to be vocal in your engagement with and support of the environmental land management scheme, and especially the more ambitious ends of it, because it's hard to see how an upland sheep farmer benefits from tier one or tier two. You know, all they can really do is establish rougher land, rougher nature on their land. Um, but I think we're at a pivotal moment, and I'm looking forward to discussing it all with you. And I'm sorry for blathering on for 15 minutes, but uh, thank you, Yosef, for having me.